for those who fish. This is the Drake Cast, a voice for fly fishing culture and conservation. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. Could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. On May 25, 2022, a year ago today, a fire started in the middle of the Bolivian jungle, burning down a lodge in one of the most sought-after fishing destinations in the world. To tell that story, we are joined by Drake Magazine founder, Tom Bai. Okay, Tom, thanks for joining me today. Seeing as this is a fishing podcast, before we get into the specifics of this potential case of arson, I want you to tell me about the main target species in the Bolivian jungle, which is the golden dorado. Starting off with, what do they look like? Give me a visual. Yeah, they're very bright, bright gold. Their heads are big like a Chinook salmon, but their their teeth are sharp and big, and it's just a very powerful looking skull, and they would be maybe in size comparable to a striper, let's say, but you're catching stripers typically in the ocean, and these fish are in sometimes very small creeks. Where do you find these fish? What country? Bolivia is the place for these fish. They are in Argentina, and that's typically a much larger river system, slower moving, fishing from a boat, that sort of thing. Picture like a big estuary. But most people that are going to fish for Dorado are traveling to Bolivia to do it. Got it. They live primarily in these big rivers that are tributaries to the Amazon, and they aren't always up in these smaller tributaries. Quick caveat here, Golden Dorado are only found in one small corner of the Amazon basin. That's the Bolivian fishery. The main Dorado habitat is in the tributaries of the Paraná River that flows through southern Brazil, Paraguay, Uruguay, and Argentina. But for today, we're focusing on the Bolivian fishery. They travel upriver like a stripe of bass would. They're following bait fish, and the, the bait fish down there are typically called sabalo, which is uh, kind of an all-encompassing word for various types of these small bait fish that are kind of like shad, and the Dorado follow them upriver. So they aren't in these small river systems year-round. That's typically in late spring, summer, and early fall, and that's why you're up there fishing for them. And then they migrate back down to the bigger river. Like, what makes the Dorado such a mighty game fish? They're big and strong and fast, and that combination just makes them about, in my eyes, the most sporty fish you can catch in a river. You may cast to them like you would a trout, but they're so much faster, more aggressive, more powerful. You really have to be ready for them. And you're probably using an eight weight or a nine weight and big flies, almost musky-like. And the ideal scenario is that the water is crystal clear and that's when you want to be there. And that is typically the case. I mean, there's it's the jungle, so it can rain and get muddy, but when that water is clear and you're seeing them, then you're casting to right above them and stripping it as fast as you can. And you may think you're ready for them to hit, but you rarely are. And what, what happens when they eat your fly? They erupt. They jump more than almost any fish I know, other than maybe a tarpon. And they're thick and strong and they just go ballistic. And again, this is small water. You're oftentimes in the river with them. 
And so it's it's just a everything you can ask for in fly fishing. Small water, big fish, super powerful, super strong, and it will test you as well as the fish. But if you win more than half the time, you're probably doing pretty good. Even if you haven't traveled to Bolivia to experience these fish in their jungle setting for yourself, I'm sure you've seen a movie or photos of it. It took days to fly, boat, and hike into the Upper Exploration tent camp. April Vokey did a film down there a few years ago. So have a bunch of other influencers. We were on the lookout for jaguars and snakes, but it was the promise of the aggressive Dorado and hard-pulling Paku that had my attention. We are in the very upper pluma doing the scouting for the early fishing upcoming season. This video in particular features a fedora-wearing angler holding a gigantic golden Dorado that he just pulled out of a tiny jungle stream. And you can't help but think, dang, I wish that was me. Look at this beauty. It is a monster, isn't it? And he swallowed the fly, literally. I know you're in the fly fishing industry. It's your job to know about these fish, but how do you know so much about these fish? Well, I... I have fished for them. I had edited stories about them, but I traveled to Bolivia in fall of 2016 with my good friend John Sherman, a photographer, and we we went to Untamed Angling is the company. Marcelo Perez is the the owner of it, and and at that time he only had two lodges there, and they're both called the Timani Lodges, and those are. They're named after the indigenous people who live in that area. And they're inside a national park. But we went down to fish for them, and it was as good as advertised, or better. And we traveled far upstream where John and I were the only couple clients that were there. It's a protected park for a reason. I mean, there's beautiful everything, the plants, the animals, butterflies that you see it was a fantastic trip and it's a interesting situation because it is a national park and it is also an indigenous protected area so picture in the united states a national park with a indian reservation inside of it that sort of arrangement and so there's a, a lot of rules there and about what you can and can't do but you're also away from anyone. You don't see a soul. You're deep within the Bolivian jungle. And so Untamed Angling, the outfitter used for this trip, which was run by Marcelo Perez, they had the exclusive fishing rights in this national park? Correct. Marcelo had gone in early and spent two or three years meeting with these villagers, the residents of this area, in order to secure the rights to, to be the the one operator there and it took a long number of years to do it but eventually he he got the permission and and set certain rules as far as needing to release the fish and that sort of thing so all that was part of the of him acquiring access to this area and tom uh you've mentioned this guy a couple times now marcello tell tell me about marcello well marcello is a interesting guy he's definitely a good businessman he he's able to go out and frankly acquire a lot of different investors but he's not bolivian he's from argentina so he's a bit of an outsider which makes it even more impressive in some ways what he's been able to do but like a lot of businessmen he's 
made some enemies along the way. There's some people who used to work with him, who used to work for him, that don't really say great things about him. And if I'm being honest, you know, he he's kind of arrogant. He likes getting his picture taken with the fish. You'll see him in most of the photos and videos. That clip with the fedora-wearing angler we heard earlier, that was Marcelo. Amazing. The man loves nothing more than a video of himself catching Dorado. I mean, in some ways, that's not uncommon among some lodge owners and outfitters. But Marcelo sees himself, I think, especially as some sort of pioneer when he may not actually have been the first to go there and discover these places. But I will say that he he has gone about making them destinations in the most professional manner possible. And by that, I mean his lodges are really nice and they're expensive. I mean, there's a certain target demographic that he's going for and that's who can afford to make it. But he he had struggles early on. He lost at least one lodge, I think two, by those lodges being too close to the river. And when they flood, they flood high and fast and they took out lodges of his that had to be replaced and moved farther up. So it wasn't like it's been smooth sailing for him, but he could take a little getting used to. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and so this fishing is really remote, basically inaccessible, and so you got Marcelo's operation with uh, untamed angling. You got the Shimane right. lodges up there, but about a decade ago in 2012, another group decided to throw their hat in the game for this Bolivian Golden Dorado fishing can you tell me about uh, Angling Frontiers? Patrick and Federico. These were the two, and they are born in Bolivia. Both of them are native Bolivians, but then came to America and went to school in Texas. Patrick went to Texas A&M. Federico went to Texas. And then post-college, around 2011, they went down to Bolivia to start this outfitting company. Patrick is very much the leader of the company team had set it up and, and we graduated with a degree in fisheries and wildlife management. They did an awful lot of exploratory trips early on 2011, 12, 13. Patrick and Federico were just like any of us had a college. They're just young, excited fly anglers who happened to be Bolivian natives. So they, they spoke the language, they knew the country, and they were very excited to get down there and and knew how popular Bolivian fly fishing trips were and that they could offer a trip that was going to be less expensive than Untamed Angling was offering and just have it be more of an adventurous trip. Um, and they they plugged along there and, and did well and made a name for themselves for five or six years. The first five, six years of the operations, they didn't have a lodge to stay at. They just stayed at tents, but they always wanted to build one. So they started in 2016 to build what was a permanent base camp with a small lodge there and place for people to stay, take a shower, etc. And they built that and finished it 
around the fall of 2017. And where where was this lodge, Tom? Well, it was upriver quite a ways, <laughs> and there is some disagreement over whether that lodge was built on the native land that they had been given permission to put it on, or on state land, which they did not have permission to put it on. Interesting. Okay, so a little bit of ambiguity kind of right. from the beginning. Right, right, right. And so we've got Untamed Angling with Marcelo, uh, our friend in the fedora, and then we've got these two new guys, the Bolivians, uh, with Angling Frontiers, right? Correct. Angling Frontiers. And how would you describe the relationship between these two players? Yes, it was definitely competitive. Marcelo, not a real fan of competition. I don't think he thought that much of them, probably, to begin with. But I think it's also needs to be pointed out that Patrick and Federico weren't from this area. I mean, they grew up 300 miles away, and they were battling for a certain number of clients who not only had the money to pay for them because they aren't cheap, seven or $8,000, plus you had to get down there, plus you have to be in the physical shape to get out and hike in these areas where it's not easy to do so. And in that regard, Marcelo kind of had, I won't really say older clientele, but maybe tougher to get them to where the good fishing is than maybe the Angling Frontiers had. So there's some stakes in this game of lodge owning down in Bolivia. Absolutely. And Marcelo was growing. He had gone out and got new investors and was opening up new lodges. And he also has operations in Brazil, at least three other operations in Brazil. So he's got a big operation he's overseeing. So he's got a lot on his plate. And he's trying to maintain these relationships with his investors and own employees and villagers inside this national park. And at the same time, grow enough clients to continue to make money. Um, so I feel like we have a pretty good understanding of like the background of what was going on, the fishing, the where, the who. Now let's talk about the what. Like, Tom, let's talk about the main event. So on May 25th of 2022, which was almost exactly a decade after Patrick and Angling Frontiers started their operation, and a year ago today, the Angling Frontiers Lodge was torched to the ground. And I started hearing some rumors that that had happened and some allegations about who had maybe been behind it. But it was all just kind of fly fishing industry stuff, right? I'd get an email or a text or a phone call and, and hadn't really seen anything public put out by either of the owners or anything like that. And then uh, I got a couple emails from people who I didn't know directly, but who we had mutual friends and just not so subtly suggesting that I should dig into this, that the Drake should make this some sort of investigative story. And most of them felt that Marcello was behind this somehow. Got it. So all this talk kind of 
came to a head a few months later, after the lodge was burned, when Patrick made a post on the Angling Frontiers Instagram page. And it went quite into an accusation of someone and anyone in the industry knew who he was talking about. The Instagram post is really long, so I'm not going to read all of it. But here are some crucial lines. Quote, This is probably the most difficult entry I've ever done in my life, which is why it took this long to post. Our lodge and every possession that we had accumulated over the past decade has been looted and burned down to ash. All the infrastructure and equipment was sprayed with gasoline and then set on fire. The people who did it were sent by a well-known competitor in the industry, who invested quite a bit of money to bribe and transport them all the way there. Tom, who do you think this, quote, well-known, unquote, competitor Patrick and Angling Frontiers are referencing? Well, there's no doubt that it was Marcello that they were referencing. There's no other operators down there. Could only be him. But it is fair to say not everybody did, because some of the comments were like, why don't you just say who it, this was, or whatever. So Tom, at this point, you've been hearing about this story for months, and now there's this big Instagram post that I think like 119 comments were on it, and you were actually tagged in this post by Patrick and Angling Frontiers saying like, we encourage people to look into this. And so, so what's your next move? So I looked into it. The strongest letter I got was from someone who had worked for Angling Frontiers. And it was basically just, again, asking me to look into it, but made some suggestions that, that it was Marcelo behind it. And again, this didn't come from Patrick. This was from someone who had worked for him. But I also knew a few clients who had been on those trips. So I called up one of them as well and had a very enlightening conversation about one of his experiences on the river when they had been stopped. And these were people who had weapons and forced them to stop. And there was obviously a confrontation between these people and the people for Angling Frontiers that were running the trip. And he didn't know exactly what that was, but was obviously a little disturbed by it. And he shared that story with me. But I also thought it was odd that they had waited three months to make a post on Instagram. And that if they were so sure of who it was and what happened, I don't understand why it took them so long to make this post. It was just confusing to me. Why wait three months to make a post about it? It sounds like, like just kind of murky circumstances may have been a struggle with like local authorities, maybe uh, just like the whole story wasn't getting out there. So, so what did you do next? Right. So I knew I had to call up Patrick. I felt like I wanted to get as much background information as I could. And I called him up and he was great. We talked for a long time. And then we talked again for a long time. Ended up being close to six hours of conversation. Like everything's been done. Everything's been seen and stepped on and already fished, already hunted. This is the voice of Patrick Tendler, one of the owners of Angling Frontiers. Everything's already been touched. And, you know, there's still places here that haven't. And that's like the whole reason why I wanted to start Angling Frontiers, because to have that feeling, that was really cool. Just to be able to offer people that feeling, 
you know, that you can't really get nowadays. You can only read about. And he told me a lot about how they started their operation. Just a very up by the boat strings. Not, they didn't go out and get investors. It was just a very exploratory, exciting time for them. And they had enough friends in the States and people who were interested in going down there and paying less money than Marcelo charged. And, and they, so they did. I don't know that they were making money those first few years, but it sounded like they were just really having a, a fun, exciting time exploring the opportunities that were down there and were trying to make a go of it as a business. But even in these early years, there were problems. And I asked Patrick about his troubles with Marcelo. I'm curious when the trouble started with Marcelo or why it is that you know that he had something to do with it. That's been something going on since 2013. Really? Since the very beginning? Yeah, since the very beginning. He began, he actually took the time to send a newsletter to all the operators that he knew and the brands and everybody to tell them that, you know, essentially just talking shit about us, saying that we were illegal, that, you know, we weren't to be trusted and blah, 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 and just completely destroying our reputation, our image with, you know, just words. We were the new guys and nobody knew us. We didn't have anybody vouching for us. So naturally they listened to him, right? Made it pretty tough on us. Basically, Patrick told me that from the get-go, Marcelo was bad-mouthing them, both in public and in private. And Tom, did you find evidence of Marcelo messing with these guys in their early years? To what degree this early stage isn't really clear. I mean, there's there's some accusations, but there was I didn't find anything in those early years that had Marcelo's name on it or that he was involved at all. Um, they were just growing their business, and they did feel a little bit like, I mean, it was, it was very competitive. And this sounds funny, but it I think a lot of this was based on social media. If, if Marcelo brought a big social media person there, they wanted to bring a person there that, to show that they had been there and it helps show off their, I mean, you, you, there aren't Google earth photos that you can just zoom in and see where these fisheries are. It really relied on people coming there and, and making social posts or making videos, both of which have been done at both operations. Patrick also said that pretty soon Marcelo was doing a lot more than bad-mouthing Patrick and the Angling Frontiers. It was just always one thing after another because he would constantly send some of his indigenous politician emissaries to, you know, pin us, pin us with some sort of, you know, falsely based allegation and start a legal process against us, you know? And it was either for deforestation or contamination, polluting, polluting. Yeah, and Patrick told me that fairly early on, they would be dealing with some local official, whether it's from the tribe or the federal government, who oversaw national parks, and he was being charged with something, with contamination, pollution, something. And he was fairly certain that these people were sent by Marcelo. He didn't have any proof of this. He just felt like that was for sure what was happening. You're already having to do the whole legal process and, 
you know, you have to get a lawyer and you got to go present yourself and, you know, go to the notary and go to the, and it gets expensive. And when you're getting hit by two or three of those every year for 10 years, you know, it, it really dilutes your resources and your attention and slowly chews away at you and prevents you from growing and from do, using all that money and time and energy on growing. And honestly, that would be a total pain in the ass to deal with, just like at every turn feeling like there's somebody there trying to thwart you. Absolutely. And it it's expensive, right? Anytime you have to go to court to defend yourself or buy some sort of who knows what they were being asked to do, the permits or the, it, a lot of it was just defending themselves at still a local jurisdiction, but you had to have a, an attorney and, and pay fees and all the, everything that goes along with that, travel there, all that. But the question was whether or not these people were actually sent by Marcelo or whether they were just locals looking for a bribe because that's just part of the culture in much of South America. I mean, Patrick was convinced, or at least he told me that he was convinced that some of them were sent by Marcelo. But at other times, he would say that the people down there were asking for bribes on their own that had nothing to do with Marcelo. So I don't know where one ends and the other started. And so Patrick's talking about like, dealing with these bribes, dealing with these trumped up charges of pollution, that sort of stuff. Like, did you find any documentation to support this? Like in your, in your research, Tom? Um, yes and no. One of the other things that I found in the newspaper and in several other sites is an eviction notice. And this was given to frontier anglers in 2018 by what would kind of be the equivalent of a mini Department of Interior, let's say. Like it would be a county level jurisdiction within a state and they were being evicted for building their lodge on state land and they weren't allowed to do so. And that they had 10 days to get everything off the property. And that was one of the first real big legal challenges that that they faced down there and that it drug on for a long, long time. And I asked Patrick about this, you know, eventually there by 2018, you had a eviction notice. Yeah. And so I, so that's, that's Marcelo though, or, or it's just him like pressuring them to do something. That is Marcelo utilizing different government institutions so so why does he have that kind of power man it's a long story but before we can hear that long story we gotta listen to a few ads as always this episode of the drake cast is made possible by scott Flyrods. here's john duncan the owner of telluride angler on why he trusts scott Flyrods. scott Flyrods are so compelling because new Scott rods are always the product of pure design. When Jim Barchi designs a new fly rod, it's because he's come up with something that's actually better for fishermen. And that's why, at any given time, the best fly rod in the world in any given category, like trout or saltwater, is very likely to be a Scott. 
For more information on how to get one of these great instruments for yourself, head on down to your local fly shop or scottflyrod.com. We're also sponsored by the fine team at the 11 Experience. Whether you're looking to chase sea-run trout from a helicopter in Patagonia or watch the northern lights from a heated pool in Iceland, the adventure guides at the 11 Experience have the perfect trip for you. For more information on how you can fish, ski, and enjoy the best rivers and mountains on the planet, visit 11experience.com. That's E-L-E-V-E-N experience.com. Finally, I want to thank Grundens for their support of this podcast. A few months ago, Grundens released their brand new Boundary Waiter collection. And full disclosure, I've never even seen this waiter in real life. But I can say this. For decades, the men and women who make a living as commercial fishermen in this country have trusted Grundens to keep them dry and safe while they're at work. Walk the docks of any commercial fishing port, whether it be Kodiak Harbor in Alaska or the tiny lobster fishing community of Conk Key, Florida, and you're bound to see a sticker that says, eat fish, wear Grundens. I bet you their waders work. To find out more about the brand that pros around the world trust, visit Grundens.com. That's G-R-U-N-D-E-N-S dot com. Before the ad break, we had just heard that in 2018, the federal government had posted an eviction notice on Angling Frontiers Lodge. And Patrick was blaming all of this on his competitor, Marcelo. Correct. When I came across that, I didn't know whether that was true or not or what side that was going to fall on. All I knew was that it certainly didn't jive with the Instagram post that they had great relations with everyone down there and and they were as great as they'd ever been. And clearly, these relationships with a lot of other people beyond Marcelo were not great. And Tom, there were a few other things that happened with those other federal agencies and Marcelo in 2018. Tell me about that. I think it's important to note that Marcelo was not some innocent bystander. He wasn't just an operator working somewhere else that had no interest in what was going on with Angling Frontiers. Because about the same time that Angling Frontiers was getting their notices of eviction, Perez filed a complaint in 2018 denouncing Angling Frontiers for taking what Perez says were illegal trips inside the park where untamed angling operates. And frankly, when I talked to Patrick, I was expecting him to tell me, no, we didn't go in there. But he didn't. He kind of said in a rather muddled way that we had permission, either implied by virtue of them being born and raised in Bolivia or through the arrangements he had with the Tsunami partners. And it does say in the original contract that the Tsunami people he was making this contract with, they can give the permission to go fish in the headwaters of this the main river that they operated on. But in 2018, that was when Marcelo filed a legal complaint against them. So it's not like Marcelo was just some innocent bystander and competitor operating in an entirely different area. He had a very direct business reason for filing a complaint against them. They were guiding in rivers that he had permission to guide in and Angling Frontiers did not. It sounds kind of like those are kind of two concurrent like problems that are happening. There's Marcelo sure. coming at him with like, hey, you're guiding where you can't be. And so right. there's those legal ramifications. And then there's the eviction notice on the lodge. 
And the two are not right. necessarily connected, but they are both problems happening at the same time. Right. Patrick is then taking that beef that he had with Marcelo over where they were fishing and applying it to the problem that was the location of the lodge. And the two are yes. not connected. Correct. And that's a great stipulation to make. But in his eyes, Marcelo was behind all of it. It was just one easy brush to paint over all the problems they had there when, you know, at, at least the first ones, the ones with the land, had nothing to do with Marcelo. But Angling Frontier's problems didn't end here. In 2018, Patrick started having some pretty serious disagreements with his native partners, the Great Shimane Council. This was the group that Patrick had signed their initial contract with. Yeah, I would say 2018 was really when things all started to go south for Patrick and Angling Frontiers. They had trouble with Marcelo because they were illegally guiding in a national park where he had permission to guide and they did not. The state was also trying to evict them from their lodge. And this is when they really started having trouble with their native partners, the great Simone Council. And Patrick laid out this whole story of how the members of the Great Samani Council were actually super corrupt and that the money that Patrick and Angling Frontiers was paying them was just going into the council members' pockets, that the money wasn't getting to the people it was supposed to get to. So eventually, the community members came up to us and said, look, you know, we just haven't been seeing any of the money. Every year we get kicked out of the office and we get not even a cent. They kick us out like animals. So every year, me and Federico, we would give them stuff outside of our own pockets because it was starting to affect ours, like our relationship, because they were sort of frustrated with the fact that we weren't doing anything about the fact that we knew they were being robbed. Right. But we couldn't. We couldn't because if we meddled in that situation, the council would just say, fuck you guys, get out of here. We're, you know, getting rid of this contract and you guys get the fuck out of here. Gotcha. So we were between a rock and a hard place, right? So um, eventually the indigenous were like, look, we need to do something. We need to receive the money. So a little bit of a, battle began between the council and the communities between who was going to receive the money first and we were stuck in the middle of that and eventually the community people said we want to receive it here because we're the ones that work here we're the ones that guard the place we're the ones that that are involved and they don't even live here they don't even come over here referring to the council right which was true they never went out there so we gave the money directly to them. He just felt like like he wasn't getting a fair deal from the Samani Council. Some of that, he may say, was because Marcelo had gotten to him or tried to bribe them. But in a lot of other cases, he just feels like they were asking for bribes themselves. And so he decided what the best thing to do would be to bypass the Samani Council that he had made the initial contract with and just pay these Tsunami people individually. So these are the people who are out in the jungle. They're not the politicians, as he put it, that are that live in town and run the council. These are the people out there that are actually helping them run their camp, build the airstrip, do all these sorts of things. And he just decided that he would start paying them directly. And he, and he fully admits this, um, that he was paying these other people 
directly, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't outstanding debts from the previous contract. And again, I got to see both of them. And the biggest one that stands out is they both had a fee per head, basically, for the number of visitors that come there. But under the contract with the Samani Council, he had to pay $2,500 at the end of every season. That was just like a usage fee or whatever it is that they called it. This is in addition to the $500 per person for visitors. So for at least a couple of those years, he didn't pay that $2,500 fee. And what I found really interesting is that the that very first email I got that we talked about earlier, who worked for Patrick, had told me in that email that Patrick ended up having to pay a bribe of $5,000 to these people who stopped him. And I thought, well, that's coincidental because it seems like he may have owed them that money. Yeah, it wasn't a bribe. <laughs> it was just like back payment. Right. I'm not sure exactly when he paid them, how much he paid them, and, and when he stopped paying them. All I know is that what communication I was able to have with Patrick, he told me that he stopped paying them because his attempts over the years to pay them didn't reach the people it was supposed to reach. Either they pocketed it themselves, all these sorts of reasons. But I didn't talk to anybody from the Great Tsunami Council at this point in the story. I hadn't talked to anybody yet, so I didn't know what was true or what wasn't true. All I know is he had decided to pay some other people directly and stop paying the Great Tsunami Council. So now, in addition to everyone else, the Great Tsunami Council is also pissed at Patrick. And all of this is happening kind of in the aftermath of a pretty gigantic geopolitical change that's happening in Bolivia. Like, none of this is yes. happening in a vacuum. This eviction is coming from the kind of local authorities. Take me back to, like, this geopolitical change. So in 2005, Bolivia did a pretty surprising thing when they elected their first indigenous leader. On the 22nd of January 2006, Evo Morales Aima became at 46 years old Bolivia's first indigenous president. His first term was marked by the nationalization of all reserves and the approval by referendum of a new constitution aimed at reconciling Bolivia with its indigenous roots. Today we have our dignity back. Never again will we be... He said about these sweeping changes that really, it, it upended this whole colonial system that had been in place for hundreds of years. What exactly did Morales, the new president, do? Well, for many years, the indigenous groups in Bolivia had their own areas that they called communal lands. And these lands were administered under what is called community justice. Basically, that the people living in the community lands can determine how to not just police their lands, but make their own decisions on criminal or unethical behavior that happens within those lands. I would compare it to, if you saw an old Western and they talk about prairie justice. It was that sort of thing, whatever. But they were able to make those sorts of decisions at a community level. But prior to 2009, those decisions could be overturned. And Morales made it so that they could not be overturned. So, like, Morales basically was giving the tribes, like, jurisdiction over their communal lands without, like, the federal government being able to come in and overturn shit. 
Correct. If it was a murder or something, that still goes to the federal level. But some of these lower level decisions, like maybe theft or or maybe burning down someone's lodge, Morales, what Morales did is rule that the federal courts could no longer overturn community justice decisions. Okay, Tom. Love the history lesson that I made you just tell me. Uh, but, but why does this matter? It matters because the indigenous group, the Great Samani Council that Patrick had just decided to stop paying, they had the final say on what was legal and what wasn't. They made the rules. And, and was Patrick taking these local leaders seriously, in your opinion? No. Let's talk through what happened in 2022 then, in like May of 2022. Because before the fire, there was some interactions. There were groups sent out to investigate the property several different times. And five days before the fire, the federal government, acting on behalf of the Great Tsunami Council, went out to the lodge to tell everyone they had to get off the property. This wasn't the first trip that had been made out there, but this was the most serious. They were clearly had run out of patience. Was Patrick there for this? He was not. One of his employees was, but Patrick was not there. Got it. So after this group went out and gave them what became their final warning, five days later, nine members from the Great Tsunami Council went out to Angling Frontier's Lodge and burned it down. There really is no mystery about who actually lit the fire. The people who burned Angling Frontier's Lodge were nine members of the Great Tsunami Council. They had called an emergency meeting three days prior on Sunday, May 22nd, 2022, with a commission of the Confederation of Indigenous Peoples of Bolivia. The topic was to determine and take action according to community justice of the indigenous peoples of Bolivia around the illegal acts, abuses, mistreatment, and threats that the Samani people have been suffering from Mr. Patrick Tandler and Federico, owners of the Angling Services and Tourism Company, Angling Frontiers. So Tom, we now know who started the fire and quite a bit of the backstory, but it's still kind of unclear to me whether Marcelo was involved. Is it unclear? Honestly, it is. I can't say definitively one way or the other whether whether he was or wasn't involved. All I know is there was a lot more to the story than what Patrick put on Instagram. And Patrick said that there was no evidence of the legal process of this burning. Well, I got my hands on a document from the Samani council's attorney that was stamped and signed by those same nine members that burned it down. And it was titled a definitive eviction and dismantling of the angling frontiers infrastructure. And then I called up one of the signers. I didn't speak Spanish. So I had a friend recall him and just asked him straight up. Were you the one that burned the lodge? And he said, yes, we were. And he mentioned, in part, that it's because Angling Frontiers owed them money. Yeah, what, what's interesting to me about all of this is, like, the story that Patrick is telling, like, it is Marcelo, Marcelo, Marcelo. It is this battling of these two people in this fishing industry for clout, for territory, for fishing. And it just completely leaves out the agency of the local people on, like, 
the land where he was operating, the people he was working with most directly. And I, and I think like he's clearly only telling a very certain portion of the story. Yes. The one sentence in his Instagram post that really threw me for a loop was our relationship with our indigenous partners was going strong as always. I mean, he said that in a public facing social media post when he went on to tell me many, many instances where those relationships were clearly not strong. And so, again, I don't know if Marcelo was involved or to what degree, but he clearly had a lot of falling out with the his indigenous partners and just decided to leave all that out and appeared to be just banking on no one asking. If I'm taking in all of this crazy information from halfway around the world and trying to decipher it, this may sound a very much an oversimplification, but at the end of the day, the biggest problem facing angling frontiers from the get-go is that they had to travel too goddamn far to fish. They had It was too far to get to the fish. So they built an airship. So they, they made arrangements with villagers farther upriver. But ultimately, their need to get to those fish put them in waters where they weren't permitted to go. And that's what caused the problem with Marcello. They already had other problems going on prior to that with other governing bodies in that area. But Marcello had nothing to do with those. And by, by, by Patrick's own admission, his debates over money and being lied to by the, the local indigenous people had nothing to do with Marcello. So he was already facing plenty of opposition, legal trouble, arguments with the local people that worked with and for him before Marcelo came along in 2018 and said, oh, by the way, you're also guiding in the rivers I'm permitted to work on and you're not. So what's our main takeaway here, Tom? Yeah, I think there's two different takeaways here. One would be for any of our listeners who are considering taking a trip down there, and that is to just know that when you're going into a country like that, do as much research as you can on the company you're going with and how long have they been operating and and what their reputation is and that's one of the takeaways and the other takeaway is is these outfitters need to be careful when they go into these other countries even if they are natives from that area and the people that live in these remote areas make the rules and you need to be aware of that going in and I think you can't just walk away from one contract with these group of people and think you can sign one with another group and that all that would be okay he ran into some trouble by trying to go around them him and angling frontiers is not the only company that ran into this that around the same time last spring there was an outfitter from Jersey or Pennsylvania or something. I can't remember exactly who it was. They were getting kicked out of Brazil for doing almost precisely the same thing. They tried to pay one of the indigenous leaders down there on the side, you know, behind the back of the other groups he was trying to work with. And they didn't follow the rules and they ended up getting kicked out of the country. Tom, thank you very much for joining us. 
When's the summer issue coming out? This issue will be out in uh, middle of June. So there's several stories I'm really excited about, but one of the feature stories is on Atlantic salmon fishing in the Gas Bay, if I'm even pronouncing that right. And I've never done it, but the writer does a fantastic job describing it in a humorous way with a lot of parallels to winter steelhead fishing, which I am familiar with. So I think the readers will really enjoy that. To get more stories like this, pick up a copy of The Drake at your local fly shop or subscribe at drakemag.com. I want to once again thank our sponsors, The Eleven Experience, Scott Flyrods, and Grundens for making this episode possible. Thanks for listening. This has been The Drake Cast.